The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them, open them up to Matthew 20. Uh, We're not verse on screen people here at Fathom, so I'd really love for you to have the text in front of you. Matthew 20, uh, we have hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open up Matthew 20 to page 825 on those books. Uh, You can also open a phone or a tablet. I don't think it's as good for you, but we'll allow it, okay? Uh, But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to finish this chapter off today and we're going to jump right in. Okay, so no time like like right now to jump in. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. So follow along. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So let's talk context about this story, okay? Uh, what we, if, we, if you're looking at the macro structure of Matthew's gospel, you'll find that at about chapter 19, everything starts to move to Jerusalem and everything starts to move to the crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, essentially chapters 19 through the end of the book is all about a movement to Jerusalem. We saw this last week while uh, the, the, the disciples and Jesus are starting to make their way to Jerusalem. And today in our verse, uh, we find that they have made it to Jericho. So they are between now Jericho. They're leaving Jericho and they're heading to Jerusalem. And so here's what I want you to know. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 18 miles. So they're about 18 miles from the city. Jerusalem sits at 2,500 feet above sea level, about 2,500 feet. Jericho sat approximately 825 feet below sea level. So what we're talking about is a 3,300-foot incline that they are taking over the course of 18 miles to get from Jericho to Jerusalem. I mean, it's like a, that's a hike, y'all. I mean, that's not just like a nice, easy uh, walk for them. Additionally, this road is famous, and you know this road. You would know this road because it is the setting of one of Jesus' most famous parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan takes place on this Road. And, and this is what he will say in that parable. He'll say, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. That's how the parable of the Good Samaritan begins. And it's a legitimate down, okay? You go up to Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem, both literally and metaphorically. So that's where we're at. This is the setting. And what we find out is that Jesus and his 12 disciples are on their way up. They're on their way up to Jerusalem on a rather treacherous road from Jericho. And the text says that a great crowd followed him. Now, the question is, who are these people? Who is this crowd? What makes up this great crowd? Well, it's likely two distinct groups of people. First of all, there are going to be thousands of devout Jewish people who are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. That's why Jesus and his boys are headed to Jerusalem. It's not, Jesus knows he's going to die. They don't know he's going to die. They think they're going to the Passover. So there's all these religious pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, but Jesus has also amassed a pretty decent following himself at this point. So there's this dual excitement on this journey of those making the trek for the Passover and some people who have been following this messianic rabbi who's healing people and preaching crazy stuff. And so there's this, this is the pent up energy on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's the setting for today's event. Now let's look at verse 30. Verse 30, and behold, There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. 
And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Okay. Two blind men sitting on the side of this treacherous road. This story is told in all three of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. In Matthew's version, which we just read, uh, we find two blind men on the side of the road. But if you were to read Luke's and Mark's versions, uh, there's only one blind man. It's not two. And scholars have debated as to why Matthew has two as opposed to the other gospel writers with only one. And most scholars think that it's uh, Matthew trying to reach his target audience, which were Jewish people. And so this, Matthew does this two or three, no, actually three or four times in his gospel where he doubles something that Mark and Luke don't double. So there's two demon-possessed men. There's two blind men. He even mentions that there's a, a donkey and a colt on the triumphal entry of Jesus. He mentions multiples at times, and that's because in the Jewish culture, you needed two or three witnesses to establish the veracity of an account. And so most scholars think that's what Matthew is doing, is that there are lots of blind people along this road, and maybe Jesus did heal more than one, and Matthew is pointing out that there are two. We're not exactly sure why he doubles it. That's the best guess we have. But in the end, I don't think it really matters. I don't think it really matters because um, these blind men sitting there by the roadside, what happens to them is actually the important thing. These blind men are sitting by the roadside, probably there to beg, probably begging alms off of uh, the pilgrims. This would, I mean, this, this road is being heavily trafficked right now. And so there were likely many blind people and people with other uh, 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 illnesses and things like that who are sitting along the roadside because this, this is like a lucrative moment for them to beg alms. I mean, this, with so many people moving along the road, this would make a lot of sense. Similar to how people uh, with signs who are panhandling pick like, really energetic uh, intersections and things like that. That's, that's where the money is at, and that's where these guys are set. But while Matt, Matthew says that there are two blind men, Luke says there's one blind man. Mark, though, does something really interesting. So I'm gonna put this up on the screen. In Mark chapter 10, we find this. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, so there's the great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So Mark names the guy. Luke just says it's a one blind guy. Matthew says it's two blind guys, but Mark calls him Bartimaeus. Now, if you've been around church for a minute, you've likely heard of blind Bartimaeus. He's a, he's, he's a character. He's a, he's a famous Bible character. And the reason why scholars think that Mark identifies him as Bartimaeus is that because after this event, Bartimaeus may have been a part of Mark's church that he led. He would have been known by Mark's people, and that's probably why Mark names him. But it's here I want to stop and make my first point about this story. See, I think this story is actually about identity. I think it's about identity. Because if you look at your text, I'm looking at my text, and there's these little headings. You see these little headings in your text? Do you ever wonder where those come from? Uh, those are not original to the text. Those editors of Bibles actually make those up and put them in there. So if you're reading the ESV, it says, Jesus heals two blind men. If you're reading in a different version, it might say something that's just slightly different than that. But if you were to look at Mark's version, it would say, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. 
And, and so these aren't original to the, to the text. These are actually added on later. And uh, it got me thinking this week about identity. Why do we tend to define people by their brokenness? Why do we... When I said blind, if I had just said Bartimaeus, if you've been raised in church, you'd be like, oh yeah, blind Bartimaeus. Why do we, why do we call people by their broken state? Even the Bible does this with our headings. And they're not original to the text. I want to keep pointing that out. But even in our headings, we call them blind Bartimaeus. We call them doubting Thomas. We call her the woman caught in adultery. We call them the demon possessed men. Why do we, why do we seem to lock in on the hardest or the most broken or, or something that they had done or the person who they once were? And yet, each one of these characters that I just mentioned was radically transformed after an encounter with Jesus. But we still remember them from their pre-Jesus state. We call them by these names. We don't remember these people based on who they were after Jesus changed them. Why don't we do that? Why don't, we, why don't we call Bartimaeus? Why don't we call him the artist formerly known as Blind Bartimaeus? I think we should do that from here on out. We'll just start calling them by who they actually are. Because spoiler alert, Jesus is about to heal these blind guys. They're not going to be blind for much longer. And so I think this is a point of application. I think it's a point of application for us. Listen to me here. Your suffering does not get to define you. Like your suffering, your hardest places in your life are not who you are. That's not who you are. Your suffering doesn't get to define you. And gosh, I'll meet with people and I'll sit with them and I'll hear, I'll, I'll just be like, hey, tell me your story. Tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. And nowadays I almost always get this. Well, I struggle with this. Man, I struggle with this or I struggle with that. I'm wrestling with my mental health. I'm wrestling with like uh, physical health. I've got a really hard family situation. And you lead with that almost as if that's your identity. I mean, it happens all the time. And, 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 and gosh, I don't want to downplay those hard things. Okay, I've got my own baggage that I've got to carry with me as well. We all have hard things that either we have done or have been done to us, but I just want to say all too often we lead with those wounds and scars and brokenness as if they are what define us. And I just think that's a problem. Listen to me right here. You are not the hardest things of your life. Okay, you are not the sufferings in your life. You are not your divorce. You are not your trauma. You are not your addictions. You're not your sexual past. You're not your failures. You're not your doubts. You're not what you've done or, or you're not what has been done to you. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. And listen, there's more than just, there's more than just suffering. We, 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 we sometimes build our identities on suffering, but the suffering doesn't get to define us. But listen also here, not even you get to define you. Not even you get to define your identity. And that culturally is in the air we breathe right now, right? You define you. We call it self-identifying. How do you self-identify? You do you. You figure it out. You find yourself. You, you, you identify who you are. But listen to me. The Bible teaches you 
that you don't need to figure this out on your own. Actually, historically, we've never lived like this. Historically, you figured out who you were in community with your family, with your friends, with your church, and your church helped you understand who you were. We weren't told, hey, you go figure it out. But now we do it. We say, you figure it out. You self-define. You self-identify. You figure out who you are. And that's an unbelievably unfair and high amount of pressure to put on someone. College students, listen, you don't need to figure out who you are. That's an unfair weight to put on you. That's, uh, humans are not built to bear that kind of weight because all that that's done, all that that's you identify who you are nonsense, all that's done is made, our, it's broken our mental health. I mean, it's made us more depressed and more anxious and more socially inept and more unhealthy than ever before in history. As a human race, that's where we stand. And I think it comes back to who am I? This question, who am I? So listen, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, only God gets to tell you who you are. If you are a Christian, only God gets to define you. Only Jesus gets to look you in the eye, look you in the face, and tell you who you are. Define your identity. You are not blind Bartimaeus. You're not the woman caught in adultery. You're not doubting Thomas. You are none of those people. That's what the crowds see when they see these blind guys. That's what we see when we look at ourselves in the mirror. We see all of our flaws and all of our mistakes and everything that's gone wrong. But what does God see when he looks at us? Listen, if, if you're a Christian, he sees his beloved son, his beloved daughter. That's who you are. That's your identity. Those other things are a part of you, but they do not define you. This is why this matters. This story matters because it talks about identity. But then it gets interesting. Look at verse 31. The crowd rebuked them. So they had just said, Lord, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So that verse has been causing me problems all week. And it's because I asked this question, why are the crowds rebuking these blind guys? Like, why do the crowds essentially just say, hey, shut up to these two blind men who are calling out for mercy? These are religious people traveling the road, both Jews and those who are following this Messiah, who have seen this miracle worker, who've seen him cast out demons, who've seen him give sight to the blind, who've seen him raise men from the dead. They've seen this, but when two blind guys yell out, they say, hush. They rebuke. Why would they do this? Why would the crowds behave like this? Why are they so insensitive? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, I think there's maybe two things happening here that are instructive for us. First, I think the crowds were annoyed. You ever get annoyed by people that just don't quite fit the way you think they should fit? I think maybe they were annoyed. In their eyes, Jesus is too important, too important to be bothered by 
couple of blind beggars. I mean, I think it comes back to identity at some level. They don't think enough of these blind men sitting on the street. But then second, maybe they were annoyed, but maybe they were just so focused on their religious experience that they overlooked them. Maybe they overlooked them and even inhibited them from coming to Jesus. They were so focused on getting to Jerusalem. They were so focused on following Jesus that they actually got in the way of others. And again, I think this is an application for us. I think it's an application for us Christians. Are we getting in the way of people coming to Jesus? Like, are you so focused on your religious experience, like your Bible study or your Sunday morning thing or your small group? Are you so focused on that that, you, that you're missing people all around you? Are you so focused on getting close to Jesus, which we would all say is a good thing, but are you so focused on getting near him that you're blocking others from him? I mean, it's one of the things we talk about as part of our vision here at Fathom is that we are about going deeper with God. We're about discipleship. We're about going deeper, but we need to be careful in that. Like, like going deep is always biblically accompanied with reaching wide. Like going deep and reaching wide are always two sides of the same coin. Growing is always accompanied by going. It's never one or the other. And so listen, if you think you're deep, like we're, we're a church who reads through the text. We preach straight through the books of the Bible. So I'm guessing you want to be deep. You want to grow. You want to learn. So like, listen, if you think you're deep, yet you are making no room for others to find Jesus through your life, then you're not deep. You're not deep at all. Actually, uh, what happens to pools of water that have no outlet? like pools of water that don't have any flow out of them, what happens to that water? Becomes stagnant. That's the word. And stagnant water, stagnant pools, become a dangerous source of bacteria, of parasites, of chemical buildup. I mean, they're gross. they, They become unfit for use. So I ask you, have you become a stagnant pool in your depth? I mean, you can keep reading the Bible. You can keep doing your disciplines. You can keep joining groups. You can go on mission trips. You can serve. You can do a lot of stuff and just dig yourself deeper and deeper and deeper and poison the pool. The crowd rebuked two blind men who were begging for the mercy of the Christ. Sounds like stagnant pool to me but then these blind men cry out. Like they, they are tenacious. They cry out all the louder. This is the kind of persistence that Jesus is looking for. Look at verse 32. They just cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is the second movement of this story. First, it was identity, talking about identity. Now comes the inquiry. 
the inquiry, the question. Jesus asks these guys this question, what do you want me to do for you? What a wild question to come from Jesus Christ. What do you want me to do for you? I love that question. But then again, I'm thinking this week, like, wait, wait, what's the purpose of Jesus asking that question in that moment? I mean, even, even if you're not the son of God, you probably could have figured out what these blind men were wanting. A couple of blind guys on the road. I mean, it's like saying, Lord, have mercy on us. Hmm, I wonder what, I mean, you don't need to be omniscient to figure this one out, Jesus. Right? Do you ever wonder that? Like, why did he even ask them that question? See, I, I don't think Jesus didn't know what they wanted. I don't think he's on a fact-finding mission, an informative mission here. And you ever think about this? You ever wonder why we pray? You ever wonder why we pray if we believe that God already knows everything? You ever ask that, like, what's the point of asking him for things if he already knows the things that we want? Why would I even do this? See, the purpose of Jesus' inquiry here is to get these guys to ask. That's his purpose. It's not to figure out what they want. He knows what they want. Listen, we're not dense. We all know what they want. But he wants them to ask him. Actually, all through the Gospels, you'll find stories, parables, indicating that God loves it when his children ask him for things. It's like on repeat, like a persistent widow Just ask him, ask me, just keep asking, keep asking me, keep coming to me, keep asking me. Like, ask me that again. That was a a threat in my house growing up, right? Ask me that again. Yeah, ask me that one more time. That's a threat. Not with our our God though. Ask me that again is, is an invitation, an invitation for inquiry, so, so what, what, what we see here is that with God, miracles come for those who ask. Okay, asking is how we activate his actions. This is a place where you can go, mm, like grunt and scribble, okay? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I know that's how we respond here, okay? Grunt and scribble, we'll work on it, okay? But asking is how we activate his action. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, says this in James 4. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, what James is saying is like, hey, you're not even asking. You don't even ask. You want to know why you don't have? Because you don't ask. Oh, and then those times when you do ask, you do it selfishly. You ask selfishly, just like what we read last week when the sons of Zebedee send their mom to ask Jesus, hey, we want to be at your right and your left in the kingdom. That's selfish. So what Jesus is doing is he's he's making an inquiry of these guys, and it's an invitation for them to ask. Keep asking. Ask me. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? So for us, hey, do you ask him for stuff? What do you want him to do for you? I'm, t- I'm talking about prayer here, okay? Just so we're really clear. Prayer. What are you asking him for? So he asked these blind guys, what do you want me to do for you? And then verse 33, 
they obviously answered this way. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now just notice a few things. They don't ask him for alms. They don't ask him for money. They don't ask him for food. They realize this is their one shot with a potential Messiah. And so they're not looking for a temporary small thing. They're not asking for that. They also don't ask for power. They don't ask for status, for position, to be great, like the boys last week. They don't ask for a selfish gain. And what they do is they ask for, they ask for the impossible. I mean, this is bigger than just like, give me a position in your cabinet. This is way bigger than, you know, give me food or give me money. He, they, they ask for the impossible. They ask for a miracle. They say, we want to see. Give us our sight. Hey, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? You may not even know the answer to that. But one way you might figure out what you actually want him to do for you is to look at your prayer life. You can look at your prayer life and you'll figure out real quickly what you actually want Jesus to do for you. So I, I do this exercise before I love this exercise. What if, what if God answered yes to every single prayer that you prayed in the last week? Like, what if God said yes to everything you prayed in the last seven days? You can think through that in your brain. What if, what if I prayed for in the last seven days? If he said yes to that, would anything be different? I mean, think about it. Like, what would change? How different would things be if Jesus really answered your prayers with a yes? Are you asking him for healing? Are you, are you asking him for your faith to grow? Are you, are you asking him for your unsaved friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers to be saved? Are you on your knees before him asking him for these things? See, sometimes, and I'll tell you this personally, sometimes I take God off the hook with my prayer life for a number of reasons. One, maybe it's I'm afraid that he won't answer me. Two, maybe I'm afraid that he won't answer the way I want him to answer me. Or if I'm really honest, maybe I'm not even sure he can answer me. And so instead, it's like, oh, I'm a Christian. I better pray. We pray weak, goofy things. I mean, things that are just silly, y'all. Lord, I thank you for this food, and I pray that it nourishes my body. Galt, that's what food does. You don't have to ask, okay? Christians, pagans, that's what food does. It nourishes our body. You don't like get, turn on the shower and be like, Lord, help this water get me wet, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, doesn't even make sense. That's just what it does, all right? We pray, I mean, we do this. We just pray like, like weak things. Lord, bless this food. Lord, bless this day. Lord, help me find a parking spot at Target or at CCU, right? And it, listen, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about those little things. I'm not saying that he doesn't care about those things, but listen, would anything really change? Like if you started looking at your prayers and he said, yes, would anything really change? I mean, I'm sure you would be well-nourished, okay? And have a good spot, but anything else? Anything else? Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
Now listen, maybe you're like, hey, pastor, I have been asking. I have been asking for the hard stuff. I've been praying the big prayers. I've been praying for my husband to come to faith for years. I'm praying for the cancer to go away. I'm praying for my kids to come back to church. They've walked away. I'm praying them back in here. I'm praying for the big miracles, but it's like he's not even listening. It's like I say it, it hits the ceiling and falls at the floor in front of me. What is he up to? You been there? Because I have. And I heard Tim Keller address this question years ago and he put it like this. I think it's really helpful. He says this, if you knew what God knows, if you knew what God knows about time and about circumstances, about the future and everything, if you knew what God knew, then you would answer your prayers the exact same way that he does. We just don't know. We don't know what he knows. We don't see what he sees. We are limited and he is not. So we know this intuitively about like our kids and children and things like that. So imagine with me for a second that uh, you have a four-year-old child and you're in your thirties, you're like 34. So you got 30 year gap. Okay. A four-year-old to a 34 year old. And imagine, imagine that your four-year-old asks you to go play in the street. They, they want to go play in the street. Okay, and, and, and all the other kids on the block are playing in the street. The street seems like where fun is being had. And so it's like, hey, life and life to the full is in the street. I want to get in the street, okay? And, and if you're four, like, that's the thing. The street is paradise. <laughs> so imagine that your four-year-old asks you that. Daddy, can I go play in the street? What do you do? Well, you don't let them. You don't let them, especially if you live on a busy street. What you do is you show them like the boundaries of the yard and you're like, hey, you can play, you can do anything you want in this yard within reason, okay? But like, like this is your area. You get up to the sidewalk and that is not your area. Do not go into the street. And when they inevitably start to complain, when they start complaining that you won't let them have any fun, because all the fun's being had in the street, okay? And you're not, you're the worst and you're robbing them and you're, you're not fair and you're, you're ruining my life. Does it sound like I have, I have any experience with this? <laughs> when they inevitably start to complain that you're ruining their life, here's what you do. You just walk them over to the curb, okay? And you point to that flattened squirrel that's been run over. And you're like, that's why you can't go play in the street. That's what happens when you go play in the I'm giving you permission. This is parenting advice, okay? Some of you don't have kids. This is gold, okay? You should be scribbling this down and mooing at me, all right? I don't know what's going on here. Listen, you're not trying to rob them of joy. No, you just know better than they do. You're even trying to protect them. And yet, we like that gap between four-year-old and 34-year-old, we are like that gap between us in our limited state and the infinite almighty God who created everything. Think of that gap in terms of wisdom and knowledge and experience and knowing what's best. Listen, the things that you think are good, that you think are safe, that you think are wise, might 
be like playing in the street. Listen, even really good things, like why wouldn't God want us to have this? Even really good things can become idols that will steal you away from Jesus. And sometimes God might keep you from those things, even the things that seem like good things to protect you. Like the street isn't evil in and of itself, right? Like I don't want my daughter being like terrified of all streets everywhere for her life. No, the street isn't bad. It's just in this season, it's not the right place for her. Maybe there's something and you're praying and you're praying and you're like, where are you? And he's like, hey, I love you. And it may be a no and it may be a not yet, but it's certainly not now for your good. Sometimes I put it like this. Sometimes he will even break your arm to get you to let go of something that might ultimately end you. He disciplines those he loves. So Jesus asks, what do you want? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? These guys say, we want to see. We want to see. And then look at verse 34. It's beautiful. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. He touched their eyes and looked at them with pity. Now, the Greek term pity, okay, that's translated pity, sometimes it's translated compassion. The Greek term is splagnizomai. Splagnizomai, that sounds cool. That's a good Greek term. Let's, let's say it together, okay? Splagnizomai. Okay, this, okay, Petrine epistle, splagnizomai. You are so cool this week, okay? <laughs> use them, use them. That's my gift to you. Splagnizomai, okay. Splagnizomai, literally, in the Greek, it literally translates to be moved in one's bowels. It's graphic, okay? You can see why the ESV has not translated it that way, okay? To be, and, it's, and it almost sounds like it. Splagnizomai. It's like onomatopoeia, right? It's, oh, splagnizomai. That's Greek potty humor, too, okay? You can use that if you want. But, but, but hear me. In the ancient world, the bowels were considered the seat of love and mercy in a person. Like in your guts, like I felt it. Jesus here is so deeply moved with love and compassion for these blind men that he heals them on the spot. That's splagnizomai. Compare his response to how the crowds were moved by these blind men. Get away. Don't bother him. He's not worth, you're not worthy of his time. That's not how Jesus responded. Listen, how do you think about your unsaved friends and family and people? Like your people. We've all got people who aren't saved. How do you, I mean, do you splagnizomai? You feel that compassion? That deep in, the, in your bowels? Like a pain for them? A hurt for them? A love for them? Because this is how Jesus feels about them. This is how Jesus feels about the least and the lost. He is burdened to his very core. But then the very last words of this text are so important, okay? The very final words, it says, they recovered their sight and followed him. This is why we think Mark knows 
his name because they didn't just go back to whatever they were doing before, but less blind. They started following Jesus. They started walking after Jesus. And it's the last movement in the story, okay? We start with identity, we move to inquiry, and then finally the result is activity. That's the result. Jesus restores their sight. He gives them sight, and in response to his healing, they activate. They follow him. Activity follows what Jesus has done to them. And scholars point out that this is like a little mini gospel message right here in this passage. A little gospel message. Jesus changes our identity. He gives us sight. He opens our eyes. He causes the blindness spiritually to, to be made sight. And then in response, we change our activity by following him. That's the gospel message. And the order is of the utmost importance there. We say this all the time. He doesn't demand they follow him before he'll offer them sight. He doesn't demand, hey, hey, you want to see? Come walk with me for a while. Come follow me. Show me your mind and then I'll heal you. As if that activity is what will lead to their change. No, he changes their identity. This is no longer blind Bartimaeus. And in his joy, he followed his Messiah. And if you've been around Fathom for a minute, I say this all the time, I'll keep saying it till the day I die. Identity always precedes activity. A change in identity always precedes a change in activity. That's what we're seeing here and we can't miss this. Listen, church, God chooses us he saves us. He removes our spiritual blindness. And in response to that, we follow him. We follow him with everything that we have. That order is so important. Don't miss it. Or you'll keep earning and striving and working to earn something that's already been freely given to you. And that's sight. I've historically used a sports illustration to drive this one home. I love this illustration, so I'm gonna do it again. Uh, but my wife and I, before we had kids, a fun thing that we did is we had some nephews who were younger and we would go watch them play Little League Baseball. A couple of nephews play Little League Baseball. So this is before I'm a parent, okay? Before I had my own kids, I would go to their game and listen, I'm expecting baseball. Uh, but have you been to a six-year-old t-ball game? Uh, that is something entirely different, okay? That is something entirely didn't, okay? So at one game, I remember uh, there was this left fielder, and oh, oh my gosh, this kid, okay? Uh, first of all, he is how they came up with the definition of being out in left field, okay? Because this kid was out there. Like, seriously, during one inning, I saw these three things happen to this little kid. First, he was wearing his glove on his face as like a mask. He was spinning in circles and he was picking flowers. Like during the game, like during an inning. And I'm like, would you look at this kid? Is anybody coaching this kid? Hey, the ball's gonna hit you, pay attention. Who, whose kid is this? And then, and then you see the parents and you're like, okay, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that explains it, okay? But I'll, I'll never forget another game uh, I was at. I'll never forget this till the day I die. Uh, I looked over, and my, my nephew's pitching or something, and I looked over, and there's a third, the third baseman, who is, by the way, a decent athlete for a six-year-old, okay? Uh, so so he, this third baseman, I'll never forget this. I saw him 
laying face down in the dirt. Like during the inning, just during the inning, face down in the dirt. And he was using the brim of his hat to scoop up like a pile of dirt during the ball game, just scooping with his hat. See, I wonder, I wonder about the crowd in this text following Jesus. And I wonder if all they see when these blind men cry out is a left fielder with a glove on his face. And they're like, what is wrong with this? Jesus doesn't have time for this guy. You serious? We're playing ball here and you've got this on your head. What is wrong with you? And then I start to wonder about myself and I, I wonder if sometimes God just looks at me and from his vantage point, if he looks at me and it doesn't look like I'm just laying face down in the dirt, making my little pile of dirt. And it's like, do you see this? Look at this pile. And he's like, I, I wonder about this. If he sees me doing my thing, looking like a third baseman face down in the dirt, and if he's like, that's my guy. I'll take that guy on my team. I splagnitsomai, that guy. I choose that guy scooping with his little hat. He's on my team. And imagine if there's like an angel up in heaven and it's like, are you sure, Jesus? Are you sure? I'm not sure he has the basic intelligence necessary to do this thing. Like, look at him. And I wonder if, God, if Jesus is just like, hey, you can be a demon. You know, I can make that happen right now. No, 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 no. He's mine. He's mine. I choose him, I'm sure. See, guys, this is how the gospel works. God chooses you and I. He looks at us and we've got a glove on our face and a flower in our pocket and our face in the dirt. And he looks at us and he sees us and he chooses us. He picks us, he saves us, he causes us to go from blindness to sight. And he doesn't do any of that because of our activity. It's not our activity, it's not our ability, it's not our potential, it's not our performance. No, we are face down in the dirt, not even playing the right game. And he starts by changing our identity. He changes who we are. He removes our blindness. Listen, he calls us to be his disciples and then he makes us into disciples. So listen, we're gonna finish this one up. It's fall. It's fall. And I know some of you are like, it's not fall yet. And save your email, okay? I won't read it, all right? It's fall. It's the start of a new school year. It's, it, it kind of feels like a fresh moment, almost like New Year's, but like in the fall, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I want to pose the same question to you today. What do you want? Like, what do you want Jesus to do for you this fall? Like, what do you want? Do you want this fall to be like last fall? Do you want this fall to be like the last few falls? Or do you want him to take you somewhere? Take you to new depths? Do you want him to use you to reach others, to reach wide? 
Like if so, if, if you want this fall to not be like the other falls, if you want this fall to be something different, here's the two action steps and then we're out. First, ask him. Ask him. Be bold in your prayers. Even when they feel like they're just bouncing back at you, be bold in what you're asking. What if he said yes? What if he says yes? It's not a promise that he will, but you'll never get if you don't ask. What do you want me to do for you? Ask. And the second thing, whatever he tells you to do, follow him. Ask him and follow him. Ask him and follow him. Do what he tells you to do. This is the life of the disciple. And you may not be a blind man sitting on the road, but he will change your identity and lead you into the right activity. What do you want? Let's pray. Lord, we, we bless your name. We bless your name because this is a, a short event recorded in all three gospels. And I think it's there to show us the kind of people you're looking for. It's not about us following perfectly. It's not about us doing all the right things. It's not about us getting our ducks in a row and proving that somehow we belong to, to, to your team. Lord, no, it's about you seeing into our lives, calling us out of our blind state and then us following after you. God, I ask for us that you would embolden our hearts to, to come to you. Give us courage to ask you for the things that we think are impossible. Give us courage to ask you for the things that we might not even want to hear. God, give us courage to not let our identity be defined by the failure and the hardship and the suffering we've experienced, but to let our identity as your sons and your daughters be fully encompassing of all that we are. And then let us, with that same tenacity, chase after you, asking you for what you have for us. So God, I pray for my friends here, for myself, that this fall would be different, that we would lock in step with what you have for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this story. We pray that the information would move into our hearts and transform us. So we pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said, amen.